Well, happy Father's Day to all you men in the room that are fathers. It's a special day. A shout out to my father who's at home recovering and doing quite well. Uh, thank you for the many prayers uh, in that way. I want to just uh, encourage you uh, at this moment to prepare your heart to go into the Word of God. Let the Word of God speak. Be your authority, not me. We're going to be teaching again from the law uh, and understanding that God, the role of the law that it plays in our lives. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. So if you could open your Bibles there or use uh, the YouVersion Bible app, you'll find uh, that uh, in that app under the events tab. You can go there, tap on events, and you'll find LEFC, and you'll have the passage right there. So in the last two weeks, we began a series in the park about the law. And next week, we'll actually get into the Ten Commandments themselves and, uh, and understand the role that they still play today. We learned that uh, two weeks ago that the law reveals, and the purpose of the law is that it reveals the character of a holy God, and it also exposes the character of an unholy man. Uh, so everybody, all of mankind, have a sinful nature, an unholy nature, and God's nature is that of holiness. The quality of his character is impeccable. It is always standing. And the law reveals that. Because by the law, when it says we should not, it tells you, it guides us to what is. And therefore, that reality is right there before us. And we know it based on the law. But the law is not the solution. It is merely the starting point of seeking the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in our lives. So the law, in, quite frankly, if left to itself, would merely condemn us. It merely points to our lack of innocence. And so with the law, though, because it exposes who we are, it then also points us to God as being who God is, and therefore our need for God's mercy and grace in our lives. Today we'll discover that the law stands complete and whole. Not only today, not only yesterday, but it will continue to do so into the rest of humankind's journey. Because as long as there is sin in the world, the law will stand. It will expose sin for sin, and it will expose the reality of who God is, and therefore our need for him. But in the text today, we're going to interact with a moment where Jesus is creating a defense. He's being accused by those who actually were the teachers of law in his day. He's being accused of not upholding the law or, or to disregard the law. And so there's this tension when Jesus speaks in this particular passage. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We taught here last year uh, from out of this text. Uh, but we're going to go at it from looking more deeply into the law, into the conflict that is between Jesus and the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. So his, the accusation is this, that Jesus isn't upholding the law to the highest standards because he healed on the Sabbath. He healed somebody on the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. And so this was a big issue uh, or rub with the teachers and the Pharisees. And then they, he would also then eat with people that were not of good reputation. 
We know that he sat down many times with people that were considered sinners or Gentiles or those who were, what should I say, oppressors, Romans, and even with those who would work between the two, the Romans and the Jews, the tax collectors. He would eat with them as well, and they were considered traitors. This was also an offense they felt to the law. And then he didn't wash the way they thought he should wash when before eating. And so these things were just little uh, pricks at his character that they were trying to make stick. Meanwhile, the Pharisees would operate with confidence on their understanding of the law and also the practice of it. They would fast repeatedly. They would give publicly. Now, fasting only required so many days, they would often fast more than that. They would also be required to give a tenth, but they would often give more than that. And they, but they also let everybody know that they were doing so. They also had a practice of avoiding unclean things as what's given in Scripture. But they've also included unclean things as being people. When in reality, aren't all people unclean to some degree? I mean, if sin's in every person's heart, this became an issue for the Pharisees and their understanding of how to practice the law. But let's not miss this. In regards to the society at their time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were considered the standard of holiness. If there were people here on the face of the earth that were considered holy and also perfect, or at least in regards to applying the law, it were it was this group, these people, the teachers, and they're the ones that are pointing the finger at Jesus. So the question is, if we understand who Jesus is as being the Son of God and therefore part of writing the law, who is truly more committed to the law, Jesus or these Pharisees, the teachers of the law? Well, let's hear how Jesus handles this. Verse 17 says, do not think that I, Jesus speaking, have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus takes right up front this accusation that says, you know, that you are not applying the law. You're not appreciating the law. You're not respecting the law like we are. So the question is, by doing the things Jesus did and healing on the Sabbath, eating with sinners, or the ceremonial washings issue, was Jesus truly violating the law, or was he merely not following the practices of the law as prescribed by these Pharisees and teachers? You see, it's true that we all can read the law, and then when a teacher begins to teach the law, the practice of it, or the application of it is often under the direction of the teacher. So over time, many applications to the law have been written by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And much of what their interpretation of Sabbath or how to interact with people that were not Jewish or with people that were Jewish but were operating in sin with the Roman government like tax collectors it was basically a list of prescriptions that Jesus wasn't following. Then you can also see this. Again, the true test of whether somebody is embracing the law or not is if the law's intent 
is to expose a holy God and an unholy mankind, how is it that the religious leaders would approach the public and say, we are righteous, we are holy, do as much as we can do? That seems to be antithetical to everything that the law communicates. They should be more humble the more they understand the law. They should be more convicted the more they understand the law. But instead, they became prideful. And how is this possible? That the law, which is meant to convict and expose how much you fall short and should cause them to go to God pleading for mercy and grace, how is it that they became prideful in their own practice of the law? Well... They did so by taking parts that they could actually check boxes on. Parts of the law, but not others. So they highlighted certain laws like fasting, where it would say fast for so many days, they would fast beyond. Or to tie 10%, go 11%. They did these things because these were things that they could literally see as tangible and perform them and perform them impressively and publicly. But to do this, they had to minimize other laws. Because there are so many other laws that are matters of the heart that it was easier, that it was very difficult then to be able to show to others. So they just kind of set many of those laws aside. That's why you'll see, if you were to read on in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, that Jesus highlighted the law and then acknowledged that they only fell short in this because they would look at the law merely on the surface and not the heart. When they would say, do not commit murder, they would say, we've never murdered anybody. But yet they held on to anger and resentment in their heart. And Jesus says, if you hold on to anger and resentment in your heart, you're as guilty as one who murders. Or how about the person saying, oh, I've never committed adultery. But meanwhile, their heart and their mind and their eyes are filled with lust. And Jesus would say, you're as guilty as one who has committed adultery if you allow lust to continue to gain foothold in your life. But the Pharisees, meanwhile, would just simply say, to the letter, we get it. But Jesus would say, but to the spirit, you do not. So you see this going on in the text when he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I'm actually going to give you greater meaning. I'm going to fulfill it. Let's go on into verse 18 to see how Jesus confronts this issue. It says, For I truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these things will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Okay, so you're having an argument with someone, and that argument is to whether or not you're truly practicing the law as they are. They've got an interpretation of the law, they feel like they're fulfilling it to the fullest, and they are the standard. The person they're arguing with says, 
you know what? Not only is your standard not meeting it, but unless somebody goes beyond you, they will not experience the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would call that fighting words. He is drawing a line in the sand that somehow this righteousness that they've established according to the law was never going to be enough. So how do we interpret verse 20? Well, you have to go back to understand what was likely happening as they were accusing Jesus of not fulfilling the law by what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not a smallest letter, not the, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means to disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So basically what he's saying is, the law has not and will not change one iota. That's a phrase we use. Did you know that comes out of scripture? Not one iota. Have you changed your mind? Not one iota. Are you going to do this differently? Not one iota. Comes out of scripture saying that not one thing will change. But it was how Jesus described this. And that the Hebrew learner would understand very specifically what he means is that when he says not one iota or not one character, not one letter of the alphabet that is utilized in writing the law will disappear from the law. You see, in the original language, it's speaking to the Hebrew uh, alphabetical letter, the yod. Or if you go to the Greek, the jot. It would be similar to the dot on an I. And that would be considered a letter because the dot in the Hebrew language was part of creating the meaning of a shape in the particular alphabet. So he's saying that not even the smallest letter, which it indeed the yod or the jot, uh, was the smallest letter in the entire Hebrew alphabet. And he's saying not one single yod, not one single jot, not the one single smallest character used in writing the law will disappear from the law. And then Jesus goes further. Then he says, not even the stroke of a pen. Again, in the Hebrew, this would be the vav. But it's also in the Greek, the tittle. And so now, you just need to know that I was told to be very careful on how I say that word. And I said it correctly, and it's been prayed for over it. So it's ordained how it's been said, all right? But if you're reading the King James Version, it says you are not to, not a single jot or tittle will be removed from the law. If you're reading the ESV, it's not a dot or an iota. But it's technically what it is ultimately saying is that not a single letter, even the smallest letter, or even the portion of a letter will pass. Why? Because the tittle is a single part of a stroke that moves one character to mean another. So, for instance, in our English alphabet, how this would look would be the difference between the capital P and the capital R. What is the difference between the two? An angled line. That is the only difference. Otherwise, they're the same character. But that angle line changes everything, does it not? How it sounds, what it might mean to a word. And so what Jesus is saying is that not even the smallest letter or even a portion of a letter will ever be stricken from the law of God. 
So if you're talking to an audience that's the teachers of the law, you're getting the sense that what is happening is that Jesus is confronting those who teach the law, and they teach it in its parts, but not its whole. Or or even removing one thing in order to accomplish another. Or to simply highlight one and neglect the other because the other would be too hard to fulfill. Because again, if you believe, you by your own efforts could fulfill favor with God on your own and become holy before God on your own merits, then there are certain laws you're just going to have to like, that's impossible. I'm going to have to ignore that one. Highlight these, I can give 11%. I can fast an extra day. Jesus calls them out. It's like, no, not a single letter. The smallest of letters, not even a portion of a letter will be removed from the law. And then he says in here that, that even in heaven and earth, it will not disappear until the law is fulfilled in all its fullness. So in other words, as John Calvin said, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one point of the law to fail. Think about that. It's easier for heaven and earth to to be completely gotten rid of, I mean, to cease in existence, than for one little point in the law to be lost or to fail. Jesus is speaking to the teachers of the law because it's through them that everybody else would understand the law. So the application of the law was through the lens of the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law. And so people would look at them and say, can't live as good as the Pharisee. Can't live as good as the teacher of the law. And, and to think that only they are in favor with God and there is no way for them to be in favor with God. Verse 19 confronts this. It says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of the commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Basically saying, greatness in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven, and in the eyes of God, so greatness in the eyes of God is found in teaching and living out the whole of the law. In other words, heaven celebrates those who revere the words written by God. And those who revere the written word of God, and even to the slightest part of the law, they revere it. They are considered great. But anyone who diminishes the law, even to the slightest, is considered least among mankind by the kingdom of heaven. Now, why did I word it that way? That anyone who diminishes the law, even to the slightest portion of it, is considered least among mankind by the kingdom of heaven. Because in this context, you have to, is he saying that, well, you can teach a law that's incompletely, and you can live out that belief that there's lessers of the law and greater portions of the law. So you teach it and you live by it. 
that you think, well, okay, they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven to suggest that they'll still get to heaven, but they'll just be called the least. I'm not sure that's an accurate translation of that or an interpretation of that. Because what it was, what it, when you look at verse 20, it says that unless your, your righteousness surpasses the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if there is teaching in portion and removing part of the law or diminishing part of the law, and you're teaching it and living it because you believe that is the case, then I would say what the what kingdom of heaven is saying is you're least among mankind. You're least among mankind because you're not a part of the kingdom of heaven if you're teaching that the law has portions or is diminished and parts of it goes away and only some parts of it stand and you believe it and you live it. That's not a person who can expect to be in the kingdom of heaven. So they're saying that such a person is the least among people here on the face of the earth. Think about what James chapter 3 says about the teacher. That the one who teaches should not aspire to do so because the teacher is held into higher account. Why is that so? Because if a teacher is teaching, then they have influence over many and you could cause many to go astray by poor teaching. So God speaks very clearly and abundantly that the teacher is in, held into a high account, that if they are to teach that the law is set aside or it's no longer or only parts of it matter today, that God gets angry by such a teaching and a lifestyle. Again, it's those who teach and then apply it. I recognize that every teacher is a sinner. I am a sinner. And there are, there are points where I can say that I even try to justify my sin. But I recognize that when sin is revealed in me that I have to confess and I come before God pleading for grace and mercy. But if I was to start calling that sin good, and that not only calling that sin good, but then living by that idea of teaching that it is good, then I have just entered into the realm where certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven because I'm teaching something other than what is the law and therefore something about God and the interpretation of God that is somehow changed. So if greatness in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven is found in teaching and living out the whole of the law and, and then to be considered the least among all people is to teach that it's in part or that it's diminishing, then maybe we've discovered something that is why the church in America in particular is falling sick, ill, I think this is the moment I'm confessing to you the cause of this entire sermon series. When we pray, and I pray, I have a daily alarm, and I've shared this before, I have a daily alarm to pray for the harvest of God. But I want the entire church to be seeking and praying for such thing that I believe the harvest comes when the church is revived. 
when the church is living under the power and, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But when we're advocating for the gospel, that there is good news for the sinner, because the law exposes, again, it's the exposure that we are sinners and unholy, and it's the exposure and revelation that God is holy. That in that journey of the law, and that it is not the solution, but it is pointing to that we need a solution. Then to start saying that there is very little difference in the morality of what the world teaches and what the morality of what the church teaches, we have a problem. Where is there good news then? If we're teaching that you just affirm the lifestyles of all those who pursue things that the Bible is very clear saying is sin. Now, I believe the church has done an awful job of loving sinners. We tend to categorize sin like we've tried to categorize the law. We're all sinners in need of grace. We invite people in, regardless of whatever their sin issues are, into the church because we're a gathering of sinners. Even the greatest among us are great sinners. But we don't come into this celebrating our sin. We come in recognizing we have sin and we can only appeal to the mercy and grace of God to find relief from it. So any teacher that would teach that there is a law that has somehow no longer relevant for today, that the laws of the Old Testament or the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as today. Those things were for then. They aren't very relevant now. Or we have better understanding now of, of what things are then. Or it's a different, you hear what I'm talking about? What are we offering the world if the gospel that we preach, the good news we preach is that Come in and be affirmed for all you do. They can get that from the world. Meanwhile, there is a God who is holy, who is not changing, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same holy God that gave us the law so that we can understand his holiness and see it for what it is. Somehow, we've shifted and we've changed it. Verse 20 is haunting to me because it says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. To the teacher, and Jesus was talking to him, to the teacher, if you teach that the law is somehow changed or diminished, or no longer relevant, if you teach that, and you apply that, and you apply that, he's giving no confidence to the one who would expect to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uses the word certainly not. So the kingdom of heaven will ultimately not include those who taught and lived by a diminished view of the law, period. I stand here a little bit trepiditious. (laughs) 
because I hope that I am teaching the law in its fullness. It is not of God to suggest that one part of the law is lesser to another. To do so is to suggest that one part of God's holiness is lesser than another. You see, whatever you do to the law to diminish its parts, you are now doing to the very character of God. And it happens subtly when we try to project upon God our nature as if his nature and ours are the same. For instance, godly counselors, people who claim to be followers of Christ, has said such things as this, God loves you more than he hates, dot, dot, dot. It's been used in marital counseling. God loves you more than he hates divorce. God loves you more than he hates your sexual preferences. God loves you more than he hates, and you can fill in the blank. We use phrases like that to give us space, to not feel so bad about our sin or our situation. Now, God is empathetic, God is compassionate, and God is love. But God is also holy and just, and the sin that is in us has to be eradicated. And so out of his love and out of his holiness, the two must be used in full. They're never compartmentalized, which is why he sent Jesus. Because his holiness demanded payment and wrath upon sin. And because he's also loving, and loving to the full, he wasn't satisfied with just the judgment. He provided redemption. You see, we cannot suggest that God loves something more than he hates something without compartmentalizing God or establishing one of his attributes as more important to another attribute. That's what we do with each other. That is a human practice, not a divine one. I am thankful that God does not operate in the manner that you and I do because he would be wildly inconsistent. God loves you and he hates sin, period. God loves you and he hates the sin that's in you, period. God loves you, and he hates the sin that is in you, period. But God then provides his son, Jesus, to reconcile the two. He that had no sin became sin for us, that we could then trust in his death and resurrection as payment over our sin. It is confounding to me to think of the idea, knowing the sin that I have, that somehow God looks upon me and my sin through the rose-colored glasses of the blood of Christ, and he sees me as white as snow. That blows my mind, because I know I'm not white as snow, but he sees me as that because the blood of Christ covers. It covers. But that only covers if there is faith in that work, and he is Lord of your life. Without it, you're simply left to the damnation of your sin. Disregarding or changing parts of the law, you ultimately begin to create your own idea of God 
to be in your own image. Next week, we begin teaching on the commandments of God. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second command is, and you shall not create a God. And by projecting upon God a softening towards sin, or that certain sins in the Old Testament now are no longer today, is to suggest that God's character is shifted. And the only way we can do that is by our own propensity to project upon him that he's human just like us. Instead, we need to learn a hate for sin and a love for God. A hate for sin and a love for God and then an appreciation for what we call grace. Because we do not deserve the work of God, but he gives it to us nonetheless. He provided his son Jesus because he knew that on your own, you would never be able to satisfy the law. You would never be able to satisfy it. It creates guilt. It creates condemnation. We looked at that last week. It is always going to prove that you cannot do it. And God does not tolerate when teachers begin to say that sin that has always been sin is now no longer sin. He's now drawn a line in the sand to say, you have lost my character. You have lost sight of who I truly am. We cannot make God into our own image. And we certainly can't diminish his character. So we have to respond accordingly to what is said here in Scripture. Number one, you cannot diminish the law at any point without diminishing the character of God. Let me say that again. You cannot diminish the law at any point the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen, one being more important than the other, or one being caught into a time and it's no longer relevant for today. You cannot do that to the law without doing that to God's character. God, your character was back then is no longer relevant now, so your character needs to shift. And so God, we expect that because you're good God and you're a loving God, your character has shifted to now where you can affirm all things. You cannot do that. And number two is connected to this. The law points to that which is eternally true. So therefore, it stands complete always. If you read by some famous preacher that the law is no longer necessary for today, you need to question that teaching. That law that was written by God points to him and his character and to our character in need of his work. So therefore, the law stands complete always. And number three, because of our sinful nature and wanting to always feel better about ourselves, we have to make ourselves aware of this and therefore resist the trends, the current trends that would interpret God's holiness by the prevailing views of society. 
Since when does society get it right? Even if 90% of America was to teach that something was okay or moral, but the scriptures say that no, God has said that from the beginning of time, that that is immoral. The 90% is inaccurate. They're not correct. In just our lifetime, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, certain things that were called out as not moral or shouldn't be included are now considered perfectly fine and affirmed. Different forms of sexuality. Even our view of how one thinks of themselves and how they're designed. It's creating a mess and it's creating confusion. But yet out of fear of somehow coming with hate speech, we, sin, we tend to then adopt a view which will cave in on itself. And people are wondering why they're, they're not feeling satisfied, they're not feeling whole, they're, they're regularly feeling like something is not quite right. They need a church that's gonna communicate, you're right, there's nothing right. But only one thing can make things right. Jesus who's the way, the truth, and the life. The world needs to hear from God, not from us. It needs to hear from God. And, and so therefore what needs to come from us are the words of God. Because there is life, right? The more I hold up the law, the more I realize I need to confess. The more I hold up the law, the more I realize how much I have to repent from. I'm in need of God's work. And number four, the final takeaway is this. God was, God is, and God will always be, I am. When, Jesus, when, when God revealed himself to Moses before giving the law, and Moses asked, well, who am I to tell the Israelite people that sent me? He says, tell them, I am sent you. Think about what that means, I am. It means he is, always has been, is that moment, and will continue to be. He is the I am. So therefore, that which would point to him can't possibly change. Because the I am is I am. And the law is going to point to what holiness looks like within the I am and our need for him. People, I hope that today, that for if you claim that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but that, that if there's been parts of your life where you've been kind of lowering certain sins of your life and kind of affirming them, maybe you need to do some business of confession and repenting, turning from it. Maybe you came into this room and, and you're like, I've never had a relationship with God. But one thing I do know is I'm not perfect. And I don't think I ever can be. God understands that to be true. 
That's why he provided all the means necessary to reconcile you to him through Jesus, his son. I pray that this has been put upon your heart because we are in a society where it is clearly becoming adversarial to the idea that there is a holy God that is eternally true in his essence always. And we've created a narrative that says, let's create God in our image. We're in need of the law more than ever because without understanding it, we'll never know that we need the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. So Father God, I acknowledge as one of the sinners in this room that my character is so wildly inconsistent when I am not working and living by the work of the Spirit in me, your Spirit, changing me, transforming me, and making me a new person, which I desperately need. And this world desperately needs that gospel too. So may we as believers that are armed with the good news of Jesus Christ not fail to respect the holiness of who you are and therefore to rely upon the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives to continue to make us more holy into your image because without your help, we just fall to the whims of mankind. So speak to our hearts, convict us where we have fallen short with the law. But more than that, Show us with a smile on your face that you created the way when there was no way. So use the end of this service to speak to our hearts, especially as we sing to you, your nature is being fulfilled and complete always. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand please? Before this sermon, we sang a new song called Same God. The things we read about in the Old, we read about in the New Testament, and then we read about and we can see lived out in our very lives now, all these years later, is the same God operating in compassion and holiness simultaneously, always. That is why we write songs about that steadfastness of God. We know that Jesus is considered to be that rock upon which we can stand. For some, it becomes a stumbling block. For others, it becomes a rock we can stand in the midst of the greatest storm. But we know this, that the rock of ages, we can sing about with confidence because he is a rock, immovable, unchanged, always. In the great hymn called Rock of Ages, it says this in verse two, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Let's sing that together.
So while I shudder to speak such words because of being a teacher, now let me speak out of the confidence of being a child of God. Because it says that he is the lifter of our heads. He is the one that does the work so that we do not have to come before him in fear and trepidation, but rather in confidence. Hebrews 10 says that because of the blood of Christ, we can enter into the presence of God with confidence. So with that, I give you this final charge. We have the very best news the world needs. Let us not fall short in what we offer them. It can't be incomplete. It must be the full work of Jesus Christ. And the full work of Jesus Christ means that there is a sinner who has sinned much, all of us, that is in need of such work. And they will never know that they're in need of such work unless they can appreciate all that sin is. It's both and in order to understand good news. So with that, let's go with as objects of grace, treating graciously others around us and pointing to the confidence we have in Christ. And then when they ask why we have hope is because we know we can come before God and he'll see us as white as snow because we have the work of the gospel in us. By faith, we receive this. And he says, then I give freely. If you'd like to talk with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room. They'd be glad to pray with you. I'll be up front as well. Go in the confidence of the Lord today, celebrating our heavenly father for all that he is and always will be. Amen. You are dismissed.